Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to thank whoever nominated us for the Fisher Net Awards. You can vote for us as Best Podcast at www.bestcatholicwebsites.com. We're in Illinois, so I can tell you to vote early and vote often. Also, today we're talking about Hans Urs von Balthasar, who was a really prolific priest who talked a lot about beauty and, and leading with beauty and beauty leading to truth, beauty leading to an encounter with Christ. All these really amazing things. You hear Bishop Barron talk a lot about this. He's he's very inspired by Hans Urs von Balthasar. So we record these podcasts in Madison, Wisconsin. And after we recorded this very episode, Dennis and I went to go check out the new chapel at UW-Madison's Newman Center. And they, at the time, were building this mosaic. It's now complete. You can go there and look at it or, or look for pictures online. But they have this huge, huge mosaic that they were building at the time. And we were just standing out there watching this, and this guy comes up to us and he says, what, what is that that they're building? And Dennis kind of explained, oh, it's an image, it's Jesus, he's crowning Mary, and, and so on and so forth. And he looked at us, he said, oh, maybe I'll go back to church, and then he walked away. And then Dennis and I kind of looked at each other and we were like, did that just happen? We were just talking about this on the podcast, and all of a sudden we encountered a guy who had an encounter with beauty and possibly will go back to church because of it. So just a really amazing story uh, after recording this. So without further ado, episode 14 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Hans Urs von Balthasar. Who's that? He was a theologian of great renown, very important, influential on Cardinal Ratzinger and John Paul II. I've never heard of him. Well, never heard of him. What can we say about that? He was born in 1905, <laughs> so he's uh, he's a millennial of the 19th century. <laughs> he was a millennial he's before, a no, no before millennial. it was cool. But he died he's in a ni- pre post. He died in 1988, so. He was uh, alive for a long time, and he was a Jesuit who was actually um, born in Switzerland. And whenever you have a Vaughn in your name, that means you're from royalty. So he was sort of a high-born type. But he got a doctorate in 1927 from the University of Zurich in a field of study called Germanistics. Germanistik. That's sort of like... It's the study of Germany. German things. like So gymnastics is the things of the gym. Germanistics is like the things of Germany. So literary things, culture, language, history. And uh, he entered the Jesuits in 1928, and he said he was very unhappy with the theology that he received. It's what they called sawdust Thomism back in the day. I think sawdust was a reference to these um, cheaply printed books that were on this kind of crummy paper. And they would just copy, they didn't read Thomas, but they read commentaries on Thomas. So you had to learn all this terminology about what does this mean, primary cause, secondary cause, and internal this and external that. And he said, nobody's ever talking about the, like, the amazing, awesome breaking in of God that th- theology is. So uh, he wrote lots and lots of books. He just tossed off books, like almost like Matthew Levering. Like every five minutes, he had a book out. Man. Big, giant books. And he wrote this giant volume, set multi I don't even series. read that many books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with <laughs> The uh, Glory of the Lord. And he's probably, he's known for a lot of things. He's known for some controversial positions, but uh, also for his rediscovery of beauty. Now, we've talked about beauty before in relation mm-hmm. to Aquinas. 
Um, but he kind of brought it to the 20th century and bringing back beauty as the primary uh, way to start, or the primary transcendental, if you can consider beauty a transcendental. And his argument was that for after the French Revolution and this enlightenment and the modernity that we've talked about before, that uh, truth was sort of the primary transcendental. You had truth, and then you should know what to do because you know what the truth is, and then uh, that means goodness. So you start with truth, and you do something good based on truth, and then beauty, eh, we don't really It just know. was like a byproduct? Yeah, it's just with this other thing that just seemed to be like an earthly overlay of pretty stuff. Or if you started with goodness, then you're starting with a finger-wagging moralism, and the people might, e- might not even buy the truth. So think of the church lady stuff from Saturday Night Live a long time ago. You know, it's just do this or else. It's, it becomes a hollow, empty thing. But he says beauty has to be the first one, and if you don't have beauty, then uh, goodness and truth will kind of go down uh, the tubes. And this is what Bishop Barron is talking about all well, the time. Bishop Barron is a Balthazarian in many ways, very oh. influenced uh, by him. He used to teach the class on Balthazar. At Mont- There's Mont- a whole Seminary. class just on this one guy? Oh, yeah. I and mean, you could spend your life reading his books. Well, I, I was watching a Bishop Barron podcast. I'm behind or, then. Or listening to a podcast or watching something. He was talking about preparing uh, for teaching this class and this trilogy that uh, von Balthazar wrote. Is that what it is? There's some well, he has a multi-volume, three-part work called yeah, The Glory that, of the Lord. Yeah, that's it. It's it's like all total like 15 volumes, isn't and it? And they're big, giant, complicated that books. That seems too. more than a trilogy to yeah, me. Yeah, it does. It's like saying Star Wars is a trilogy. Well, his his trilogy is uh, very interesting. It's not just three books, but it's three concepts. So he says you can study um, what he calls the theo-aesthetics, the theodramatics, and the theologic. So starting with God in every case. So the theoesthetics or aesthetics is the study of God's revelation of himself. So that's where we talk about beauty, this perception of his manifestation. But then the content of that revelation is what's good, and that's what we call the theodramatics. Like how do you how do you live, how do you do what God wants? And then the theologic is related to truth. So that's what is God revealing and um, it's sort of the grammar of the Trinity. But he again he's saying beauty has to come first. It's this perception of God's self-manifestation that's beautiful. So it's very much like what we talked about before, that the revelation of ontology is what we call beauty. So this guy's like right down your alley. In some ways, but he's, you know, Aquinas is trying to do this Aristotelian thing and make it Christian. Kant is coming after the French, I mean, not um, Kant, Balthazar is coming after <laughs> Kant and others who are basically they don't know what to do with beauty. There's this intense practicality, so kind of truth is something interesting, and this kind of more hyper-moralism that sometimes goodness is the number one thing. And then beauty, he say every earthly theory of beauty just kind of gets overlaid on different things, and so he wants to get back to the essential questions. Well, that's why I wanted to ask you, I mean, how was he able to... Um I mean, no doubt uh, von Balthasar is an original thinker, but what was the impetus that he found to go in this dist- this different direction? How did he kind of break out of the neo-Thomist uh, way of thinking? Well, I think what they often say is there were certain people who were influential on him, especially Karl, Karl Barth, which is one of the great uh, Protestant uh, theologians who wrote the systematic theology about he always insisted on the indwelling and the breaking in of God that the primacy of scripture that you, you can't just see scripture as some human thing that just generally was kind of discovered by people but that God himself had this in, a certain inerrancy and this intentional importance in scripture and so instead of saying what is the comment on the comment on the comment get mm. back to the original thing and so he says there can't be any fruitful theology the phrase he uses is uh, that is not born under the constellation of charon and caris 
So charis is like the word charismatic that we that we use. It's uh, attractive. I've heard of it before. Attractive charm. You're very charismatic, Jesse. Oh, thank you. Your attractive charm is obvious to everyone. I'm a, uh, I'm an asthmatic that cares. There you go. A charismatic. <laughs> you're a caring asthmatic. There you go. Um, but it can't just be charming because if it's charming and it leads you to something false, then that's not good either. So it has Jesse. to be both. I know. Calum, this ancient idea of physical and moral beauty, like the essential ontology, and then it has to be charming as well. So it has to have content, which would be or in the truth realm, but then it has to be sparkle with delightful attractiveness. So when you talk about beauty as the compelling power of the truth or the attractive power of the truth, um, this is what we're talking about. So the external form has to be related um, to its internal reality, and then it has this kind of uh, splendor. And so... His argument is you can't really talk yourself into the truth in a way. You have to be enraptured by it. You can't just you know see a woman and say, "Oh well, I think our genes would you know combine well, and maybe our children would be." <laughs> Who says you're wearing jeans? Well, maybe you're wearing nice <laughs> khakis. <laughs> he says, "No one who can behold who has not already been enraptured." So you can't behold God until you've been enraptured by God. You can't come to know the truth until something delightful and sweet and wonderful has been. Um, perceived and so a, a homily that's really compelling or a really compelling author is someone who's not just telling you the truth but has charmed you and helped you to understand and then you want to know this is so sweet this thing you're telling me tell me more that's a desire for the truth and then when the truth is known then you want to live that out so beauty is attractive the truth is what follows and then what comes after that is how you live where the people in his generation might say live this way, live this way, live this way, moral law, moral law, moral law, and then maybe you'll come to know the truth if you're smart. And then beauty, eh, Man, that sounds we don't like know what to do. dark. <laughs> well, it is in a way, if you think about the 19th century or the what we've talked about before, this intersection of Pelagianism and Jansenism, it's do, 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 behave, behave, behave. That's kind of the content of Victorian moralism a lot. You don't need to know why or understand, you just need to do. So start with either goodness or start with truth. And then beauty, we don't know where that is. But yeah, but being drawn in by beauty, it can really inspire you, like you said, to then seek truth in that beauty and then inspire you to to do something but for the right reasons not just for you know checking things off your list right exactly and that's why a lot of modern people thinking about evangelization don't just show up with the truth argument here's the catechism let me beat you over the head with it it's let me show you the beauty of my life let me show you the beauty of nfp for instance so people make a big deal about people in nfp bring each other flowers and love each other more and stuff i don't know how that if that actually works but they start with the beauty of that life i'm not gonna say <laughs> they start with the beauty of the life instead of do this or else or don't do this or else so he said he's going to start where philosophers conclude they usually say beauty uh, let's make up something He's saying, we're going to start right there. And uh, he says, if you make beauty just a mask, you'll wind up doing away with it. So if you just say Gothic is the most beautiful or this kind of fiddleback chasuble is the most beautiful, you're not really getting to the essential ontological So you question. can you can even approach beauty with that mentality of do this, do this, because this is beautiful, do this. Right. So you can, wow. That's he's saying if you have an inner worldly theory of beauty made up by people and you universalize it, chances are it's going to fail. If you say, oh, Chris's favorite word, in the, in the 19th century, the German uh, architectural theory theorists had a big argument and they had a conference that was turned into a book called In welcher Stile sollen wir bauen? You know what that means, right? In what style shall we build? Because they had all of history in front of Why them. Why is that your favorite word? 
so fun to say. Oh. And, and, yeah. So they said, well, you know, there was Gothic. Well, no, Gothic was the best. They called that the Spitzbogen steel, the pointed arch style. And other people said, oh, the Greek was the best because that was the most rational, whatever. And then they had said, oh, we'll combine the Gothic and the Greek and we'll come up with this other style. They're all interworldly theories of the best style based on history. They're not really asking the ontological question, you know, what's a church? What's the best way to express those theological uh, realities? And so the, the 19th century is full of stuff like that. A lot of moralizing, a lot of um, high-powered intellectual people deciding what the, the best thing was, but a lot of people not connecting to the essential ontological uh, questions. And beauty was sort of the forgotten thing. And so he wanted to develop a theory of beauty that would uh, come in handy for all of this. And he says it's Plato's fault. Why is it Plato's fault, Chris? You're, you have a master's degree in philosophy, right? Let's put you on the mm, spot. Yeah, I do. Why would it be Plato's fault? Is it because Plato thought that earthly material things were uh, ontologically fake and false and lying and that they were just uh, shadows and deceptions? Right, that the form or the idea of the thing was <laughs> was somewhere. How do you... Like, does, He's very class, smart. Jesse. I know, He's but he always smart. like, I don't know. And then boom, right answer. <laughs> He's humble Nailed and it. smart. Humble, as Jesse would say. Man. Humbled and smart. <laughs> so, um, you know, in a sacramental thing, we know we have the earthly material stuff, but then there's this other thing that shines through it. It's this reality that you call the splendor uh, that makes it worthy, that makes it knowable. And he says, Plato thinks of earthly things as a derivative form or de derivative thing from the form, which is this perfect idea. So um, he's really, he goes on and on and on and on and on for many pages about why beauty is necessary and get some uh, terminology like that. But what he wants you to do is trust the form, the shape of things, the, the nature of things. And he says to be a, a Christian is a form. It looks like something. It's not some abstract concept, but it has a reality that is important. And so these are all the things that um, you have to know when you start thinking about Christian, Christianity, the Christian life. If it looks like something, if it is something, then it will. It should look like something. All right. So he has a great influence on John Paul II and Benedict the Sixteenth and Bishop Barron. What is the uh, <laughs> and Dennis McNamara. and Dennis? Uh, what is the uh, most obvious liturgical implication of this? Yeah. Theology can you go over something like really obvious so I can participate? Well, you know, how many times have I said that word in all these podcasts? I think mucus. <laughs> oh no, ontology. Sorry, we left NFP. NFP. Oh, yeah. yeah. So what he says is, we have to look at what is really said, really meant, really encountered. And so, if you just have a bunch of external theories about the most beautiful vestment is from the 14th century, oh, the most beautiful vestment is from the 13th century, you come up with some kind of theory, then you're not really revealing the nature of a thing. You're just arguing about some external thing. And so, um, that the theology of the, all sacramental aesthetics has to be based on the ontological reality that comes from revelation, primarily, and not just uh, human intellect. And so he comes up with uh, two handy terms that might be a good thing to uh, talk about, the theological aesthetics versus aesthetic theology. Oh, wait, didn't we just talk about this like a couple weeks ago? Nope. No, that was uh, liturgical asceticism. Oh, my and gosh. Liturgical aestheticism. I will never be able to <laughs> differentiate those two. Well, here's what he says. If you, theological aesthetic is um, a way that you develop your way of doing from the nature of theology itself. So... You know about God, and therefore you do something based on that theology. So this is this is my model, right? I mean, I didn't think of it, but you start with ontology, and then you build. What's the phrase I say all the time? If you don't know what a thing is, then you don't know what it looks like. 
how to, to build it what to do right yeah if you don't know what it is you don't know what to do if you don't know what a baby in the womb is then you don't know what to do with it do you protect it or can it be gotten rid of these are the questions if you if the ontological failure so theolo- theological aesthetics he says is an attempt to do aesthetics at the level of theology that is develop a theology of beauty that's based on the, that theological reality which doesn't sound that complicated really but people were often not doing that with everybody had their inner worldly theory. I mean, think about all the theological discussions people have now in the different denominations and, you know, all are welcome here. And do you accept, you know, same sex marriage or not? These are all ontological questions. You can develop a theology out of an inner worldly theory of we want justice for all, or you can develop your theology out of the, the content of revelation. So he says the opposite of that is an aesthetic theology and that's developing a theology based on what you like what your innerworldly theory of beauty is. So I like Gothic architecture, so therefore Gothic is the best architecture, and therefore everybody should do it all the time. But it is the best, I mean. Well, it has certain good things about <laughs> it. <laughs> but what happens with those things, and I think this is what happens sometimes in the 50s, you know, there's these innerworldly theories of theology. So back to Jansenism, God's waiting to fry you. Well, for a while it works. God's waiting to be offended. For a while that fear works, and then you say... Hmm. Ultimately, that's not very satisfying. It's not very reassuring. Uh, liturgical fads come and go. I think of all the terrible things in the 60s, the shag carpets and the orange vestments and the crazy stuff that went on. There's an innerworldly theory. The, the liturgy must conform to whatever our relevant innerworldly theory is, as opposed to our aesthetic system should come out of the theology that we know that pre Or that us. when we go to, lit- to the liturgy, we are entering something else we are leaving our mm. world and we are entering you know a prefigured heavenly jerusalem right so everything we've talked about really and we haven't called it a liturgical we haven't called it aesthetic theology or theological aesthetics is basically from this balthazarian and in a certain sense ratzingerian viewpoint there's a pre-existing well, reality that's the way you talk about something that is derived from ratzinger ratzinger ratzingerian, yeah Man, I love that. Wylerian. If you have a, some group theories, we'll call them Jussian, Wylerian, Carstensian, Carstensian, Carstensian theories. That if you just come in with some earthly theory that you wish the liturgy were like this, and you project your subjective response on it, that's a theological. That's an aesthetic theology. I have a preference about my aesthetics, and I'm going to develop a theology around that. It's the primacy of subjectivity. Where he's saying, for beautiful things, if you're going to encounter things that are truly beautiful, that's that revelation of ontology we've talked about before, you have to have that beauty. And without that beauty, he says, things are joyless, humorless, lusterless, and boring, and eventually unconvincing and unpersuasive. And I think we've all experienced that. Mm -hmm. For a week or two, you try something new, and then it's ultimately kind of uncompelling or unpersuasive. Um, because there's no transformative revelation. It's it's not the innerworldly theory that transforms us. It's encountering the the um, revelation of God that transforms us and gives us that enthusiastic. Yeah, probably uh, some people listen to prayer. this podcast and felt the same thing. They're like, ah, I thought this was going to be better. <laughs> Don't give people. <laughs> I told ideas you not to say that. Jesse. Oh right, yeah, sorry. that was between us. <laughs> so what does it come to in the end? He says, true exegesis. That's this true um, sending, what's exegesis, Chris? The true explaining, Being born out of? convincing power of God is to move to the point where the image, that's the thing we make in the Holy Spirit, is transparent of the one who made the image, that's the artist, except that artist, the maker of the image, and we're not just talking images of like statues or whatever, the liturgical image, the, the image of life, the image of loving the poor, is when God and man are in unity. 
and God has to be in charge of that. So God is the, the starting point, and then humanity, human beings go in, in the coordination with God, and then you have an theological aesthetic or an aesthetic theology. The, the good one. <laughs> so moral of the story a is... A theological aesthetic. Don't water down Thomas Aquinas. Or anything else, right? Start with the revelation of God, the fullness of that expression. Let God's revelation be the primary motivator. You know, he compared, a lot of people talk about Paul's uh, road to Damascus story. He doesn't know what the heck happened to him, right? Flash of light, voices, knocked off his horse, whether he had a horse or not. Something knocked him off something and he couldn't see. And he's like, what the heck just happened to me? So there's an experience that broke in of some thing and then he has to go figure out what it is so the the balthazarian model is let something moving transformative and emotional and delightful transform you so then you say what is that i don't know i've stopped in a church never went to church before but something beautiful happened i heard music i heard preaching i saw something someone was nice to me whatever it is the fullness of that reality smacks you in the face and then when you wake up you say what just happened and then that's the quest for truth and then if you want the truth hopefully it's compelling and then you are transformed to to live in a good way if you start the other way around do this or else because i'm the smart guy Maybe mm-hmm. you'll convince people for a week or a month or a year, but eventually it kind of peters out and doesn't mm-hmm. uh, isn't persuasive in the long run. It's funny that you mention uh, the conversion of St. Paul because in my own personal life, um, I had a, I was very drawn to the painter Caravaggio mm-hmm. after seeing his conversion of St. Paul in Santa Maria del Popolo in Rome. And in that same little niche, there's uh, the crucifixion of St. Peter where he's upside down. And then that led me on a path to discover more of his artwork, a lot of it, which is in Rome. But the, his, his painting style and the beauty and the, uh, just the raw nature of it and how vulnerable all of these uh, men and women are in his paintings was a beauty that drawed me, drew me deeper into my relationship with Christ because of seeing that. Right. So you had an experience of beauty, which was not just that it was a pretty picture, because it could have been a beautifully painted picture of the devil or mm-hmm. Hitler or something. Who knows, right? It's not just a, a beautiful external, but you encountered something that was true and that dis- inspired in you a desire to know, how do I go see all these other paintings? And then what are these paintings about? And what is this Christian mystery? And then hopefully you, and then you, you went. And it wasn't just knowing, mm-hmm. but you did. You walked from here to there and went to see everything. So beauty is delightful makes you want to know and then when you know you want to do and that's he's saying is the christian mission rather than some kind of finger wagging moralism so i think that's a good model for our day people don't want to be told what to do they want to be invited or what to believe yeah what to believe seduced so to speak in the proper sense uh into doing the right thing not because someone says so but because it's a beautiful delightful and and freely chosen thing to do all right well i think we should beautifully answer a liturgy question True enough. I freely choose that. <laughs> so would Hans Urs von Balthasar. Balthasar. By the way, John Paul wanted to be a cardinal, named him a cardinal, and he didn't want to be a cardinal. He wanted to stay small, and he died before he could get his hat. So he had the honor of being named a cardinal, but then the humility to never become a cardinal. So uh, That is kind of B.A. I love it. Yeah, there you go. Nice. All right, well, let's answer a question. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, 
it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, gentlemen. Is this from Rudiger? It is. This one's actually from Rudiger. This one's actually from Rudiger. They oh, put Rudiger nice. as the name. Never underestimate which, the power of an influence in the podcast. Which I really love. I love this. Okay. Rudiger, real, maybe the, maybe the real name is? Probably not. I fre- Rudiger says, I frequently pray some of the Liturgy of the Hours because I like the Psalms and the structure of it. Although most of the time I feel like I am just reciting words and hoping it can mean something for me. Could you all explain why we put this under the umbrella of liturgy and how the lay who pray it could approach it as liturgy? Thank you. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Rudiger. Hmm. You want to start, Dennis? Well, yeah, I think a good place to look is the introduction, uh, the the general instruction of the Liturgy of the Hours in the front of the Liturgy of the Hours books. And it gives the nature of the Liturgy of the Hours. It talks a lot about how angels and saints are praying and praising God and that song of heaven is brought down to earth and we get to join into that song of heaven. So that fundamental um, offering of praise or thanksgiving through praise is is a liturgical act. I mean, we, we sort of think liturgy equals some kind of dispensing of some kind of grace, the sacraments, but I think you can talk about the Liturgy of the Hours as a liturgical act, joining your voice, singing the praises of God, um, going through the cycles of the readings and thinking and knowing and praying about the nature of creation and redemption and all that, and um, it's, a, it's a liturgical act in that sense, and it's meant to be public. Most people do this on their own, but it's, it's a public liturgical act, typically, that sometimes gets done privately. Yeah, as important as the liturgy is, it's it's really uh, how do, how do, what makes a liturgy a liturgy and a devotion devotion is a slippery sort of um, thing to explain. But I think you've hit upon something there, Dennis. Some would say that liturgy is if it's done according to an officially an official book that's given by the church. But that's not really a satisfying. There's probably a few different answer. definitions. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I think one of the one of them that has to be there is as Dennis is saying is it's a it's a corporate public act. It's an action that's done on behalf of the entire mystical body of Christ. So even if you are praying, you know, uh, vespers or evening prayer in your room, uh, you know, you're doing so with the angels and the saints and Pope Francis and your bishop and your priest and uh, the people of the liturgical institute, uh, those who have uh, come before us. So it 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 always retains a public and corporate character uh, versus. You know, say a hundred people praying the rosary, even though it's a hundred people, it's uh, it's a hundred individuals offering offering a, a private devotion. It's still efficacious and it's still helpful, but it's just a different nature. It's a different type of prayer than liturgical prayer. Right, and the general instruction calls uh, liturgy of the hours a participation in Christ's own intercession. So he's right there at the right hand of the Father, praising God and pleading for us. And we do the same things with our intercessions in the liturgy of the hours and the praise of Him in the canticles and the psalms and so that's a participation i guess in that sense in the work of christ right what's your classic definition about that participation of the people of god in, in the, the work, work of god, god right? yeah yeah uh that's our i think it's that's the catechism's definition of liturgy so um 
if you're praying it by yourself, just know that that you're kind of actualizing your priesthood in the mystical body of Christ, and you're making that body itself uh, as a whole uh, come alive and attain that full stature, full stature uh, which it was made for. So um, it's a very important thing to do, and it's a beautiful prayer of the church. And there's other, maybe we could do a podcast on this sometime, how to enter in more fruitfully into the prayer of the mystical uh, uh, mystical body in the Liturgy of the Hours, because it is a difficult type of prayer. I mean, we're talking about poetry that's uh, 3,000 years old, it's, sometimes it's a little hard to uh, to tap into, but there's some real fruits there, and there's some ways to enter into that that can be that can help us to pray the Liturgy of the Hours more fruitfully. Yeah, and this is a question I frequently ask Chris, where I'm like, what's a devotion, what's a liturgy, how do you know? And there's some gray area there, but I think you guys kind of summed it up really nicely. So, And Rediger also, if you really like Liturgy of the Hours, you should check out the Mundelein Psalter, which allows you to see the notations for sung Liturgy of the Hours, which is really great. You can go to mundeleinsalter.com to get that. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.